Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In this episode, I have a discussion with John D'Angelo of the Anti-War War Vet. After the last episode with Zach Johnson, who also has some military experience, um, I, I recognized that I wanted to get some uh, different angles from somebody who uh, had combat experience. So I talked with John today. Whereas the discussion with Zach focused a lot more on maybe the, the theological, spiritual aspects, uh, the, the conversation with John today got a lot more practical. And one of the things that you're going to hear repeated in this episode by John is kind of an emphasis on, uh, even though he's a Christian, um, recognizing the need for um, what Gary Habermas would call like a minimal facts approach. Uh, this idea that um, we are going to uh, talk to secular people and, and atheists and w- we can meet on the common ground. I don't have to sell them on the image of God to have a lot of the same common ground and discussion as to why the state should be abolished. Now, as Christians, we can certainly go a lot deeper than that and have those discussions, but we don't need to evoke Christianity in order to, to make some arguments uh, with, with those who are secular. So like I said, this episode is going to end up being uh, a lot more practical, and I think you'll find it a, a good complement to our discussion with Zach. Yeah, so um, my name is John D'Angelo, and um, I am the author uh, behind the now pretty inactive blog, uh, Anti-War War Vet. Um, I have an Instagram page that I kind of still lurk on, but I don't post much to anymore. Um, and I became um, pretty involved with libertarianism sort of broadly, Um uh, about 10, 12 years ago, uh, I'd gotten back from Afghanistan in 2012. Um, and sort of during my time there um, with the Marine Corps as a truck driver, um, I became, uh, I always hesitate to say disillusioned, but a little disappointed uh, with the mission and um, sort of our standing there. Um, and drove me to read a bit about the history of the war and um, American foreign policy broadly. Um, and that kind of led me to an anti-war position. Um, I met my wife shortly after. Um, uh, I was a, an atheist or um, maybe like a default um atheist and then became a Christian um, in, in a church that she had brought me to. And um, I kind of found a way to bring those two positions together. Um, I tried to do it in the most intellectually honest way possible, um, trying to honor scripture and what I thought to be the most important political philosophy that I had come across, uh, which was um, voluntarism, um, or anarchy. And I kind of found that there was a lot of, a lot of overlap between especially the early Christian church and, and what I was reading Jesus to be commanding his followers to, to do and to live like, um, and how to interact with power and how to, uh, interface with government. 
uh, and what I was reading in my Mises.org resource list. And um, yeah, so I, I, I kind of ended up here where I was bomb throwing with memes on Instagram for a little while and then found that that probably wasn't the most productive way to, um, to go about things and probably wasn't, wasn't putting my best Christian foot forward, uh, which is so easy to do online. And so now I'm just focused on fatherhood and uh, reading and, and learning and, um, and yeah, I, I do these podcasts now and then too, just to kind of chat with people. Um, that's, I, I think I answered your, your question. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I, I suppose the fatherhood thing is probably a, a part of why, why you've uh, let your site lapse, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to be making some ridiculous meme with a toddler's clone at your phone and wanting to see. So I felt like that probably was a, was not the best use of my time. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, I know that you can find your, your story on a number of other, um, sites as well. So I think that was a, that was a good synopsis to kind of get us up to speed of, of your, your really quick history. Um, but you know, one of the things that that's interesting, which I remember hearing it now, but when you said it, it kind of clicked for me for real, where you were an atheist when you came to a, a, uh, nonviolent position, which is, which is interesting. Um, because I, I know that uh, you know, there are quite a lot of like secular humanists and stuff who who kind of take the the uh, nonviolent position, and sometimes it seems harder to actually get pe- Christians to be nonviolent than it is to get secularists to be to be nonviolent, uh, which I, I find kind of ironic. So mm. I wonder if you'd be nonviolent if you came to Christianity first. <laughs> um, you know, I I took a nonviolent. I still I still grapple a bit with pacifism. I mean, I. I, I think it's the highest ideal. I think it's, I think it's crucial to a Christian life. Um, but as, as a father yourself, I I think you can agree that the tension between like providing a safe environment for your family and the, um, prospect of violent interaction, um, even if you're not choosing it, uh, is always kind of a tricky one in my mind. But that being said, I, I came to a nonviolent state position and ultimately, I, I don't know which came first, um, an isolationist foreign policy as something that I thought was important um, or what we should be doing as a government that in the United States or um, you know, a posture of nonviolence for the state in general. But ultimately, I, I arrived at both of those conclusions uh, and and that was really just because of like a pragmatic, um, from a pragmatic angle, I, I don't see American foreign policy, um, as really the, the bill of goods that it's sold as. Um, and I think if the more people spend time with thinking about what, what's been going on, especially the global war on terror is such an easy, uh, entrant into, skepticism for American foreign policy choices, but, um, you know, it's, it's futile. It's often counterproductive. Um, and the, the product of those poor decisions or malicious decisions, uh, depending on how you look at it or who's the actor, 
um, is the worst possible thing in the world, which is the the taking of human life often at a grand scale and in violent ways and in such a banal uh, bureaucratic way, which makes it so much more disturbing to me. Um, so it was easy once I started learning about it to, to reject it. Um, and now it's just kind of a question of what my rejection actually means and, and how I can turn that into something tangible for good. Okay, so that's helpful. Anti-war is different than uh, than nonviolent or pacifist. Yeah, I'd say. Um, okay. What? What? Are you, yeah, I th- I think so. I mean, um, yeah, I don't want to. Uh, no, no, I can see that. I understand. Yeah, when, when you when you uh, divvy out violence to the state to to do violence as it sees fit for a variety of purposes. Um, as opposed to imminent danger to yourself. I think those are two different things. Yeah. Right. And I think it's a good place to start for, for the secular mind too. It's not, you don't have to talk about the sanctity of human life or the universals of Christendom to make the case that like war is an objective bad, um, or something that we should try to avoid at all costs. And, and, you know, here's the reasons why hitting a school bus full of kids with a drone bomb is unjust. Yeah. Um, so I like the, I like the term that you used, and I want to jump off of that. You, you use the term, um, you weren't satisfied with the bill of goods that you were being sold. Um, and I mean, that, that's kind of, that's a part of, of, uh, you know, my story too, which is you start, you start learning real American history, you know, the, the off script stuff. And the more you learn, it's just, it's just insane uh, what's what's in our past and, and present. Um, so, in terms of the of the bill of goods, right? So, I, I assume you came from a similar background to me. Uh, like, do you do you have like conservative influences? Yeah, I think so. Okay. My mom was. Um, I, I grew up in a single mom household. Uh, we lived with my grandmother for a long time, and. Um, they're definitely right leaning, but I think my mom is, uh, much like my wife, the position I respect a great deal, which is, um, thoughtful removal from the entire political sphere. Like my mom doesn't want to talk politics or care much for politics. Um, which was definitely part of my upbringing too, as, which I think makes it easier because we didn't, I didn't come from a tribe, uh, ideologically. I, I came from a, you know, uh, more or less like middle of the road, right leaning suburban um, household. And, you know, we were nominally Catholic. Uh, I was baptized Catholic. Um, and then we kind of fell away from the church because it was hard for her to do logistically. Um, and then I think those were, you know, important seeds for my foundation. But, um, you know, I was never really, I never had much impressed upon me. Yeah. So, okay. Correct me, correct me if, uh, if this is wrong about your upbringing, but you know, for, for me, I, I viewed the military and police as kind of, um, you know, people who, uh, kind of got my freedom for me, you know, whereas, as now I realize that certain groups of people don't see the police, uh, or the military that way because of, of their history with them or interactions with them. So, uh, you know, you, with your military background, um, 
and and now being an anarchist like how do you how would you start a conversation with somebody who kind of views things as we probably did growing up like the military and the police get my freedoms and they um you know they protect me and they're um you know building building this uh this mythology of America, you know, our greatness, like how do you kind of pull back the curtain a little bit? Like what's your first step? Um, so I come from a military family and a lot of the Marines that I had, uh, that I had deployed with ended up turn, you know, becoming cops, turning into cops. Um, and so I, I still have like this, um, I've heard it before referred to, I think by Scott Horton, but, um, I really like the term like boy scout patriotism. Like I really do love the, the sort of cartoonish version of American history and, uh, you know, the American founding. And with that, like, I, I appreciate, um, the spirit of the like really corny, you know, sheepdog sort of thing. Like I think any functional society has people who um, do stand as like a vanguard against um, foreign aggression or internal aggression, crime, whatever. Uh, so I, I have a, a great deal of sympathy for police and the military as a, an institution. Um, but if I'm talking to someone uh, I, I try to, lay that groundwork early that I'm not coming from it as, you know, uh, the, the Chaz chop, you know, Molotov cocktail thrower. Um, I don't hate police. And I think just like that Hannah Arendt banality of evil thing I was mentioning earlier. Um, I, I do think that they're often victims of circumstance, uh, from a moral perspective. I, I, I think, <clears throat> um, you know, they, they're in often untenable positions and think they're doing something good, uh, and have a difficult time being introspective and thinking that maybe this isn't the greatest thing. Um, so I, I try to, I try to make that clear. And then I, I try to just talk about the costs, um, financially, and then in life, uh, of our current regime of foreign policy decisions. So the war in Ukraine is a perfect example. Um, you know, I, I hear a lot of hand waving and, and disregarding of the choices of NATO expansion um, in the you know, following the fall of the Soviet Union, and people try to disregard that as a primary motivator for uh, the Putin regime. And I, I mean, I have no idea, but I, it seems a logical enough um, conclusion from the expansion of NATO so far east that Russia would feel threatened by that. Now that doesn't excuse the decision to kill a bunch of people in Ukraine, but, um, but it puts us, you and I, or, or I suppose you being abroad, maybe even more so, but, you know, being in the contiguous United States, I'm at legitimate existential risk from nuclear Holocaust because of choices that I have no say in, um, which feels very undemocratic to me. Uh, um, and you know, the global war on terror and all the issues of blowback, the expansion of Al Qaeda from a group of a couple hundred um, zealous farmers to uh, a global organization of tens of thousands, um, all 
can be drawn directly back to American choices, um, American government choices to intervene in the various wars in the Middle East um, and their relationship with Saudi Arabia. Uh, so I, I try to make those points just to make it clear that this isn't some ephemeral thing that I like to think about um, and and you know, I want, I'm some would be philosopher. This is tangible. Um, the attacks on nine 11 took 2000 plus American lives and, you know, moms and dads away from their families and so on. Um, and it did that, uh, not just because Al Qaeda hates us for our freedoms and the choices that these people in power make are, are putting us at, at risk. And I think that that's a, a good starting point for a lot of people. Uh, and it's, you know, you're, I just finished my taxes last week. I, I did them a little late. Um, it comes at a significant financial cost to each of us, and we don't think about that enough. But um, your dollars, your being any American taxpayer, are going towards a lot of really unjust, certainly unchristian things. And um, there's only so much you can kind of contort yourself before you start grappling with that, or you know, you ignore it entirely. Yeah, I think that's really important. Trying to make it tangible and that's that's what i think history has done for me you know seeing uh i remember just a couple years ago when um the the general from iran was assassinated uh we we bombed him and everybody's like well i'm glad we got him you know iran's so bad and i i just asked the question i was like well why why does iran hate us like why are we enemies like, well, you know, they took hostages back, you know, in whatever, 79 or whenever it was. Yeah. I was like, do you know, do you know why? No. Well, you know, you go back to the coup and then you go, I mean, you, you just start looking at history and everything's connected. Like you said, with NATO expansion and, and Russia um, or, you know, the Cuban missile crisis. Well, how dare, how dare they put missiles in Cuba? Well, we have missiles in Turkey that are, that are right on, uh, Russia's border. Of of course, they're going to put missiles in Cuba, and Cuba's a um, their own country. Why can't they make decisions for themselves? You know, why do we have a say in that? Um, so it's yeah, it's tangible. It, it's very tangible. I think that's a a good approach. Um, yeah, and to that point about uh, the sovereignty of Cuba or whatever, um, one of the things that strikes me about. Uh, the choices of governments in interacting with one another is it's much like in any domestic situation, sovereignty only goes as far as power will allow it. Um, and they're not, they being those in power are not really concerned about limiting your sovereignty, challenging it, uh, revoking it uh, when it suits them or when it goes against their um, stated ends. And so American foreign policy and, you know, generally like this global, hegemon that we've we've built for ourselves um only really appreciates sovereignty or uses it as a cat call for mass murder when it suits them but you know the sovereignty of of china or taiwan even um as it stands with our our treaties with those countries as you know going back 70 years, um, doesn't really matter because we still have to, you know, potentially go to war with China over the South China Sea and the islands there. Um, or the sovereignty of Cuba, as you said, really only extends as far as our own, um, you know, bodily safety can, can allow it, which in some respects, I, I guess is fair, uh, if you're thinking in, in a cold calculus, but, um, 
none of this stuff is happening in a vacuum. You know, Cuba didn't just decide they'd like to, you know, terrorize the thoughts and mind, the hearts and minds of Americans with, you know, the prospect of, of nukes on their borders, but, you know, came from somewhere and, and thinking about that and not just reading headlines and reacting and forgetting what you saw yesterday is an important, I think, primer for, for getting to where I am. Yeah. Another thing you said, uh, resonated with me because I th- my, my closest friends, so I've got three college friends and two of them are, uh, you know, are in the army. Um, and then our next door neighbor, uh, back in the States, um, at my parents' house that we're really close to, he's a, he's a police officer. And, um, you know, you were talking about how, you know, you respect the idea of it and, um, and, and you really, yeah, I mean, y- you can honor them and, um, you're talking about the banality of evil and how just, you know, um, it's just everyday people who are kind of carrying out these things that, that, uh, they're not malicious. They're not, they're not evil. They went into the army or the police force with good intent and they've probably done very good things, probably haven't committed atrocities, but you know, they're cogs in the wheel that allow those sorts of things to happen. And so, uh, yeah, it's, what you said resonated with me because there is this respect and and stuff that I have for what they do, but at the same time I recognize the machinery that it runs, and that's uh, that's a difficult thing to hold together. Yeah, I don't know if we have time for this anecdote, but I I just was having a conversation with a buddy I deployed with, um, who became a, a cop and is now on a SWAT team um, in a local uh, town here in Connecticut. Um, and it's like a pretty rough town, crime ridden and a lot of drugs. And he was telling me about the SWAT raid they did a couple of weeks ago for this um, murder suspect that they had been tracking for a long time and knew that the following morning he would be getting on a plane um, at, at a Hartford airport and uh, fleeing the country. And so they conducted this SWAT raid. I was arguing against the uh, the necessity of these raids with him. And he said, well, this guy's a murderer. You know, he killed, he killed this guy. Like we got to go get him. And I, I just, it struck me that he never thought, like I said, you know, you, you can't call the TSA and just, I mean, he's going to take his belt off and put his hands up. Like we can't peacefully find a way to, to get this guy. We have to crash down his doors and potentially kill him or anyone else to, to, to get our guy. And I, I think when, when the machinery exists for the sorts of things that we're talking about, it necessarily is going to be used. And it's one of the big reasons why we didn't want things like a standing army uh, early on in American history is because um, when you have a standing army, you have a, a penchant to use it. And, you know, suddenly, you know, you flash forward a couple hundred years and um, you've got a hammer and everything's a nail. Uh, and it's just, there are solutions to the problems that we think are ailing us. Um, and most of them are, are things that are going to reduce ultimately the power scope and breadth of the state. And so these conversations become, um, you know, outside the lines of respectable discourse because they don't suit the powerful who, who use them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that reminds me, I mean, I, I've heard of this happening in lots of government offices. I know as a teacher, it happened with uh, the school system too, but 
you know, you get allocated a certain amount of money and at the end of the year, they're like, all right, well, we've got this money left over. We've got to use it because um, if we don't use it, they're going to think we don't need it and then they won't give it to us next year. So we have to kind of justify it by using it. And yeah. so that, you know, that idea of the standing army, you have it, you're going to use it because how else are you going to justify having it? Yeah. And it's, you know, it's kind of cool, right? Like if you're the, the, the chess player at the local police department, you have this new MRAP um, and you've got this gang of guys who trains all the time to crash indoors. um, And they're all, they're all very excited to go out and do their thing. And um, you know, all this machismo is, you know, very much, I think part of it and it's, it's disappointing. Um, But it's also, again, like very tangible. There's plenty of stories uh, in the 50,000 plus SWAT raids that we have conducted in the U S every year of, you know, babies getting hurt or maimed or killed. Um, you know, the 10,000 dogs or something that they, uh, estimate are being shot by police every year. Like these individual cases probably seem, you know, somehow justifiable to the people that are, that are taking part. But, um, I, I think once you start grappling with the the numbers and and the reality of things on the ground, like, and, and I'm an ER nurse, so if if the justification uh, for this stuff is supposed to be something like the drug war, I can tell you, as most people in emergency acute healthcare can tell you, is it's not working. I've seen more corpses related to fentanyl and um, you know the crimes related to the secondary to the drug market um, to tell you that it's not working. So maybe, you know, we can dial it all back a little bit and figure out a different solution. Yeah. I think part of that's probably because if I see an MRAP going down the street or if I know my police department has it, um, makes me feel safer because I'm not a criminal. Like they're not going to come after me and I know that they're going to go after the bad guys. Um, and they're cool. You get to bring your kid to the Delta truck and they get to climb around and Ooh, uh, you know, it's all very, aesthetic and and silly in some ways. Yeah. So, um, you know, we talked a little bit about, about freedoms and the idea that, uh, military and police kind of protect our freedoms, uh, to a certain extent. One of the things that, that I've struggled with and would love to know now, if you've had any discussions of this being in the military or, or even post-military since you're in contact with, uh, with some friends, um, I struggle with the idea of, um, you know, rights, especially as a, as a Christian and, and I mean, even as an American, this idea of inalienable rights, like inalienable means inalienable, right? And, uh, that that's tied to our humanity, not tied to our United States citizenship. Yet it seems like as we conduct wars and, um, police operations that we don't really think that rights are inalienable. Um, you know, the, um, uh, the investigation that they did about, uh, black sites and, and things and the torture that the United States was doing, you know, you, you take, you take people and you just don't classify them as, um, combatants and you can take them to some place and you can torture them because they're not, they don't have human rights. Um, so I guess my question is, it seems like there's this, there's this really big double standard where we talk about fighting for inalienable rights, yet it seems like the way that we get to those inalienable rights for United States citizens is to deny inalienable rights to others. And you mentioned 
bombing a school bus uh, with kids. I don't know if that was a, a real example that you were thinking of or or what, but I'm sure you can think of um, some real things that happened. I'd love for you to talk about um, that kind of discrepancy between U.S. rights versus inalienable human rights. Yeah. Uh, so the school bus example is a real one. It's happened several times. It happened in Syria. It got a little bit of uh, news coverage, but um, yeah, there was a... Uh, I imagine it had to have been targeted and followed fairly closely. Those, those predator drones, um, uh, Reaper drones, they, they, uh, they have like high def cameras and they generally don't, um, just like zoom out somewhere and, uh, to the call of, of, um, uh, they don't generally just come out and just bomb randomly. They do a lot of, um, reconnaissance and stuff and they use people on the ground to make the calls for when they're going to bomb so they they hit this school bus i don't understand how that that could have been confused um and it's it's happened uh in i think in iraq and syria certainly um and i'm sure elsewhere uh kindergartens and daycares i mean the this is sort of the nature of of um this giant machine um and yeah i think you're right i mean ultimately the the question about uh, human universals really falls away when you're making uh, military decisions, which in some respects, I guess, is necessary if you're conducting a war. Um, it just so happens that our war is sort of ever expanding. Um, who we are at war with uh, is an ever growing list. And um, that necessarily means that there's a, that many more people, uh, the citizens of all of those you know, countries that we add on, um, that become unpersoned and, you know, the unfortunate victims of, of, uh, of this ridiculous machine. Um, and I, it's the only way I can really think about it is, as in terms of a machine, because it's so soulless and, and bloated and insane. Um, but I, I don't think people are making uh, moral calculus at all in, in the military or, uh, in the police often, I think they're making, um, decisions based on processes and uh, objectives. And when you're making strictly tactical decisions, uh, strictly strategic decisions, it's very easy to um, to think that you're making an omelet and sometimes you have to break eggs and that's just the way things are. And it's unfortunate for, you know, person X or Y, but, um, you know, these are the, these are the costs of American freedom, so-called. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of, uh, Tolstoy. He talks, he talks a little bit about the machinery, you know, and he talks about how you, um, diffuse this responsibility. You know, if I'm, if I'm the executioner, I'm like, well, I mean, the, the judge convicted him or the jury convicted him, the judge sentenced him. Um, you know, his, his lawyer had an opportunity to defend him. I'm just flipping a switch. You know, I, I'm just kind of doing my job and you, you're able to kind of make your your role really minor and something that, um, yeah, isn't a big deal when you when you can't see the big picture. Um, and I, I think, have you read by any chance uh, Smedley Butler's War Is a Racket? Yeah, okay. it was one of the one of the first like big anti-war books I read. So interestingly, just because uh, I had, so Smedley Butler is like a legend, obviously uh, in the Marine Corps. And he's um, in, in when you're in boot camp in the Marines, you have to yell these, they call them ditties. Like they'll give a call and response thing. So um, 
one of their call and responses from the drill instructors was two Marines, two medals. And you yell Smedley Butler's name and they do this constantly. Um, but it's, he, his name reverberates in the culture of the Marine Corps. And when I found out that he had written that, I was genuinely floored. Like this guy is, is held up as the standard. And here he is challenging the same, the same war that we read about and are told, you know, we had all these heroic actions with the Marines, you know, the battle of Bella Wood and, and all of this stuff. Um, and it really struck me that, you know, he got a medal of honor in, in world war one, um, and was tasked uh, afterwards with going around and trying to fundraise for it and was challenging the, the very fact that we were in that war. Um, and this is a guy, uh, you, you can't question the credentials of a guy who's led people in combat enough to have won two medals of honor, been awarded two medals of honor. Um, and by all accounts is this, this perfect example of what it means to be a Marine. Um, and, and he, he didn't buy it. He wasn't, he wasn't on board, um, which is just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, um, you know, I love if you follow his story after, after he got out of the military, um, you know, he wrote war is a racket with all of that hindsight. Um, and, and so that's powerful. But then after the war, I think he did, he did what you were kind of talking about at the beginning where he fought for veterans rights. He fought for their pensions and, and that kind of stuff. Like he respected them, but he hated the machinery, you know, you know, the big picture. And so he was able to kind of divorce those two things and recognize individual people's motivations and where they're at, uh, as compared to the, the system as a whole. Um, and that's, that's something that, uh, you know, as I talk to people who are in the military, a lot of them, the longer that they're in, the more they get disillusioned with it. And I've heard stories of, you know, them talking about, uh, like the, the higher ups who basically, you know, you, you have this certain track, you go in, um, and then you get out and you become a contractor and you make loads and loads of money. And they just, they told me about it, quite a number of people who, who were just gaming the system. And uh, it, it reminded me so much of Smedley Butler. Do you have any um, like anecdotes or do you have any stories of, of anything that you've seen or, or talked with people about where uh, you have tangible examples of, of what Smedley Butler ex- observed, but like in modernity? Um, I mean, I don't. Uh, as far as like the incestuousness of, of corporate um, entities in the military. I do know that like, you know, there was, there was always a Honeywell rep anywhere we went because we were, you know, truck drivers and we had these high-tech weapon systems and these computerized, um, communications that required a bunch of service all the time. Um, but, and so we would deal with them and they were often guys who were doing what I was doing three years ago. And now they're out making, uh, 180 grand or whatever to be there for the same amount of time. Um, but I, what I had seen was, was mostly the, I mean, we were on the road a lot. Um, my, my mission was to secure fuel for fuel lines, um, fuel supply lines. And so we would drive tractor trailer trucks, um, that were owned by Afghans, uh, owned and operated by Afghans. And then we would just provide security for them. It was a very odd mission. And I think a perfect opportunity to really see just how 
absurd this whole this whole thing was. It was extremely expensive, and um, you know we would we would lose a lot of fuel. Um, and there's something about seeing uh, gas that's like you know, ninety eight dollars a gallon or something evaporate at twenty thousand gallons a emission all over the the sand. It's just so insane to think about. Um, but I I think that the that incestuous relationship of of power, um, military power, and the corporate interests is is generally only seen at the top, and that's um, you know these these segments uh, in in the various hierarchies in the military and government um, exist. I think for that reason um, to, to to sort of obscure a little bit of the the villainy, um, make it less obvious to those, especially the the people on the ground that are carrying out a lot of these things, it's necessary that they have the buy-in to continue conducting whatever the operation is. Um, <clears throat> so if you start questioning the, the veracity of various claims or the, you know, how, how functional it really is, um, it doesn't really serve the ultimate ends of power. So I, I know in the military now, um, or at least, you know, when we were really involved in a lot of like combat, uh, combat operations in the Middle East, there's an understanding that like no one really gets why we're here. But now that we are and, you know, we're brothers in arms or whatever, um, we're doing this for one another and for general safety of our crew and because um, it's kind of fun and we're 20 years old and they gave us um, 50 cal machine guns to play with. And um, it's, it's, you know, it's this sort of postmodern take on, on the military, which is like, it, it's all ironic and inauthentic and whatever, you know, it'll make for a good meme or a good profile picture and I'll make a little bit of money and go to college for free. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit cynical and um, extremely sad, but I think that's sort of the reality for a lot of people. Okay. Yeah. I was just going to ask you, is that like something that, that in retrospect, you kind of impose on yourself back then, or is that, do you think that's, that's a really common perspective? No, I, I mean, the tropes about like this being either a, an issue that we don't understand or, you know, that is like the mission in Afghanistan, right? Or um, <clears throat> I know uh, some of the guys I deployed with had been on the same group that had gone to Iraq in like 2008, 2009. Um, so if you're deploying to Iraq in 2009, you, you fully understand that you don't understand what it is that we're doing there. Um, except that like Saddam's gone now and, uh, there's still people shooting at us. Um, and you know, term like Sunni and Shia don't really mean a whole lot. Um, but they're Arab and different looking and speak a different language and they're the, the stated bad guy. And so, you know, we'll do what we have to do. Um, when I got to Afghanistan, we had already been there for 11 years, uh, 10 years. I'd gotten there in 2011. Um, <clears throat> and we had had this undulation of military action because early on Afghanistan was the focus. That's where bin Laden was. Bin Laden's gone. We kind of focused more on Iraq and now we're back. I was part of the Obama surge. Um, and so we don't quite get what we're supposed to do here, except that we're going to dominate this country. And the the perspective of riding around in a multi-million dollar high-tech vehicle um, past 
shepherds with sheep um, past people who don't have electricity, whose running water comes from a giant, um, you know, plastic tank that the, the little community utilizes, people who ride on motorcycles, seven people in a family all at once, um, and who draw water from a well with a bucket. It's really not hard to see the absurdity of the contrast between, you know, us and the enemy and, and not quite understand what it is that we're supposed to be doing here, what mission we're supposed to achieve. Um, it certainly couldn't be hearts and minds like we were told because they certainly don't seem to like us very much. Um, and nothing we're doing is, is to win hearts or minds. So it, I think everyone's very acutely aware um, who's who's operating on the ground, especially if you're outside the base and dealing with locals um, or part of a, a combat mission. It's it's impossible not to see. Yeah, so you're talking about multi-million dollar vehicles and and losing twenty thousand gallons of gasoline. Um, you know that's that's a lot of money. And uh, talking about just doing your taxes, it makes me think. Um, you know, when I do my taxes every, every year now, I think about, man, like 50%, whatever it is of this is going to fund something that I, I wholeheartedly don't believe in. Um, and that's just the war part. I'm sure there are lots of other things I don't believe in that, that my money goes towards. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's sold to us as being, well, that's, you know, part of what you do because you're an American citizen. Um, you, you live under the constitution, under this law. Um, and it, it reminds me, I heard you talking in one of your interviews uh, about Lysander Spooner and uh, his, his work, No Treason. Um, so I'd love for you to, you know, talking about taxes and, and military spending and waste and, and, uh, and all that stuff, but the us being sold that it's kind of an obligation that we have. I'd love for you to kind of just give a little introduction to Spooner, uh, Spooner's No Treason, and um, kind of tie that into what we've been talking about. Yeah, so uh, Spooner wrote this this uh, short piece, sixty pages or so, um, called I think after the fact, titled No Treason, which was uh, you know he was an, a lawyer, an American lawyer, and an abolitionist back when it you know took real guts to to be an abolitionist, um, <clears throat> who kind of arrived to the conclusion that the constitution was, um, was not binding for the contemporary American citizens of the middle 19th century, because most of the people who had signed it had been uh, long dead. Um, and you know, it was, it was something that you couldn't, you couldn't argue would be, um, still controlling us today if, um, consent, which was his, you know, his underlying principle uh, really couldn't be understood to be given by the individuals of the day, or um, especially those who weren't voting, um, either because they didn't have the right, which was the vast majority, or because they chose not to. And so he challenges all the various uh, presuppositions that we learn um, in grade school about the Constitution and, and the compact that it's supposed to provide. And he talks specifically um, at in the beginning, actually early on, about about taxation and uh, its its justice uh, as it stands, like the arguments for 
taxation um, really don't hold up. And I, I don't believe he's a Christian. He never really makes any mention of uh, a spiritual angle. So again, he's making a secular sort of pragmatic argument against the use of power by elites to to maintain a sphere of influence over the populace, to fleece them for their tax dollars, and to, um, in his time, you know, conduct this uh, institution of slavery, or um, you know, soon after to to fight a civil war um, that he saw as as wholly unnecessary and unjust, um, because the the nature of our union um, was sort of built on false pretenses. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a really interesting piece, how it connects here, I guess, to our conversation about like power in, in the military. Um, uh, and especially with, with Christian anarchism, I think, you know, we really have to think as Christians about our, our interactions with the world around us, because there's the temporal space, right? The, the worldly, um, things that we can touch and feel and see, and then there's this spiritual realm and, and the kingdom of God that that we are promised. Um, and to to participate, or worse, to be um, like a, a an excited participant, um, an active patriotic participant in this in this government and power um, is to sort of fly right in the face of the, the stated ends of God and of, and of Christ and what Christ commanded of his followers. And, and, um, you know, to have that built in to your culture should give a lot of Christians immediate pause when they think about things like patriotism. But instead we have, um, a culture of American Christian, uh, American evangelical Christians, certainly of, uh, hyper patriotic, you know, um, avid military support, uh, you know, all of the things happy to sort of hitch their wagon first to the red, white, and blue, and then to, um, Christianity. And, and, uh, you know, it's, I think it's one of the more depressing things about the church, uh, right now, um, is, that this connection with the state is so individual, excuse me, individualized and so um, heartfelt. Um, it seems to be the primary, the primary thought in most American Christians' minds is is their relationship with the state and not their relationship with the promised kingdom of God. Yeah. Um. You know, I, I think that's, uh, that's one of the, the hard things, um, in terms of, of being a Christian, um, is that, uh, I think this, this impact, I'm not, not saying that, of course, atheists and secular humanists, uh, have emotions and feel for other people, but it, it feels like because of my view of the image of God, um, like this this whole issue just strikes me at a, a fundamentally different level, like just the devastation and, and despair of of what we're doing to the world, um, and and the systems that we're kind of enslaved to. Um, but I think you know one thing that I would want to emphasize here, and and maybe make this kind of the the last talking point, is that 
I think a lot of times people think that whether you're pacifist or anti-war or, um, you know, anarchist, I think a lot of times people view that as a, a negative sort of thing, like a critical sort of thing. Like you're just trying to jab at people and criticize them for what they're doing. Um, but I just like two years ago, I started, um, reading some books on moral injury. I'm not sure if you've, you've heard of, uh, that term, but, um, it, it seems like it's a, it's a relatively new field, at least the classification of it. Um, but it's basically, you know, talking about how soldiers are, are injured morally um, when they come back. Um, and, and part of that was uh, there's this guy named David Grossman. He wrote a book on killing. Um, and his, I thought his book was good. He's, he's an interesting guy, but um, at least his, his one piece of work was really good. Um, and talking about different studies where, you know, they, they realized that um, it wasn't even, you know, a lot of times we think, well, PTSD and all this stuff, that comes from people facing death. Like it's, it's, it's fear. Um, but he talked about these studies that they did in like World War II where um, the soldiers uh, would have like in- increased rates of, of uh, psychoses. Whereas like people who were in London or bombed out places where they were, they were having air raids all the time, like they didn't have a significantly increased rate of psychoses. So they're like, well, it's not really, it's not necessarily just a fear that something's going to happen to me. There's something more that's causing these psychoses. And so the hypothesis was, well, it's because there's this, you know, we, we don't think that people are made to kill each other. Like that, that's not part of who we are. So you have to basically tear the moral fabric of a person to train them to kill somebody else and to put them in situations where daily they're thinking, am I going to kill that guy? Am I going to kill somebody? Um, and so at least I, I don't know, you know, what research has been done since then, but there's a lot on moral injury that's just uh, really interesting. Um, I read one book, it's like a book of, I think like 10 or 15 essays from people who were um, in battle. And the one struck me because this person has PTSD, but they, were, they weren't in combat. Like they talks about that the situation that impacted him was when they went into like this, this uh, villager's house and basically, you know, he saw the look of fear on his face for his kids and his family and all this other stuff. And he was morally injured not because of any situation that he was he was in to fear for his life, but because of the moral fabric that he had to tear in himself. Um, so I would, you know, I don't know if you have any any stories or insights into um, what you know what people go through in terms of moral injury and and the things that are done to them. But I think it's a really important place to end, not just to kind of pick at the system. But to also recognize, um, you know, some some areas that we want to build up and, and kind of repair and, and help people. Yeah. So your initial point, I think, is a really important one, which is you you can't have a politics of negation. And I I for the life of me, as you were talking, I couldn't place where I had recently read about this, but um, some some newsletter somewhere was talking about this issue of politics of negation and how anarchism. Um, particularly leftist anarchism, but uh, maybe anarchism in general, um, can exist in this form where it's just 
you know, the anti, you know, I'm anti-war, I'm anti-state, um, I'm anti-violence, whatever. And instead of uh, offering alternatives or, um, you know, really putting up a, a functional secondary parallel thing, it's just a matter of like, you know, putting down the current thing, which is really not a difficult thing to do. Um, so uh, the the issue of anti-war um, maybe is better served as, as a pro-peace agenda. Um, and that moral injury um, and, and the way that all ties in is that um, you, I think you're right. A, a lot of veterans, especially of the global war on terror, um, have extremely high suicide rates as they did with Vietnam. And these are two uh, big military actions where the buy-in so-called uh, of the individual participants is really kind of hard to come by. And so if I have to go to a foreign place, uh, get, you know, shot at and uh, bombed, and then I simultaneously have to take a human life and I don't quite understand why, um, you know, I don't see that person as a genuine threat or enemy, uh, that, that often flowers, those seeds often flower into something, you know, really destructive later on, um, which is why people have really high rates of divorce and alcoholism and again, suicide, uh, is because I think they're, they're taking part in something that's, um, really unjust. Uh, there was a piece in the New York times just this week about a drone operator who, um, you know, because they're not, uh, classified as combatants, they don't really go through any of the same, um, psychological reviews and decompression times and all that stuff. And they're asked to go on high def camera and kill people like a video game. Um, and he really struggled with that. And I think, you know, the, the point of the piece was really inane. It was basically saying, you know, we need to classify these people as combatants so they could get more mental health treatment. And it's like, well, maybe we should just dismantle, um, all of the, the various, you know, institutions that, are perpetrating these things and, and having these people act as, um, you know, participants in bombing various countries all over the world. Maybe that's the thing that we should focus on. Um, I, the David Grossman book is, is wonderful. Uh, actually had, I read it while I was in the Marines right before, um, one of my early schools. Um, I think it was part of the recommended reading list and it talks a lot about how, you train an individual um, Western um, American, you know, these cosmopolitan educated people um, to do something so uh, barbarous. And it's part of, yeah, it's very streamlined and, and really quite amazing. Uh, every aspect of your training um, has this underlying, uh, this underlying focus on killing and death. So like when you respond, uh, oftentimes you'll, the time to respond, you'll be saying kill and it'll just be, it'll be a hundred guys yelling kill as like an affirmative to whatever they're being told. And it, when you're in it, it just seems like, yeah, this is what we do. This is the culture you yell kill. And, um, but, but every aspect down to that, you know, mundane of a, of a detail is supposed to prepare you to pull the trigger when the time comes. And, and the question is not um, so that you can feel better about it or it's easier for you morally. It's that so in the moment, um, you won't hesitate and that you'll do the thing that you have to do. Um, overcoming your innate aversion to you know killing another human being, um, which exists no matter how 
much you dislike that other person. Even, even if you're fully justified and they did something terrible to a loved one or whatever, there's a, there's a human element, um, that, that makes you not want to do that, not want to kill. Um, the pro peace, uh, nonviolent position is, is the, the natural one. Um, and I mean, you know, natural in the sense that you and I would think, which is like our nature as image bearers of God. Um, because all human beings are, that's uh, not something that we get to, we get to draw a border around and then, you know, those people inside the border, outside the border are, are not image bearers. Um, and it's, it's an important thing for Christians to talk about and wrestle with um, explicitly and something that I think churches should be, especially in the West, um, who are the, the major dominant force in the world right now, um, is how we think about violence and how we as Christians um, are to participate with that, to uh, consent when it's asked and maybe even when it's not and functional ways that we can be pulling away from, from this uh, organization um, instead of being so, so happy to be part of it. Um, because it's one of the more heartbreaking things about my even, you know, personal experience with church is, is just how much of the military and police culture has pervaded and, and comes to kind of define, um, the church body. And it's, it's this overwhelming irony for me that, um, you know, the same group of people who will talk about Jesus, uh, and his death and, and resurrection, uh, as we had just celebrated last weekend, um, will be wearing clothes or hats, um, or, you know, working in occupations that are the very same organizations that would have, uh, chased down and killed, um, Messianic Jews, uh, Jesus himself, um, the early disciples of the church. It was the same, the same powers that early Christians wrestled with, um, and really got, I think a lot of their credibility and, um, resolve from fighting against are now, uh, we hand in hand with, with the church, which it's just amazing to me that that's where we've landed, but I hope that's not where we, we, we end, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, I think that is a good place to end, uh, you know, end this, uh, discussion though, because, you know, you're talking about, uh, negative politics and, um, I'm not sure if you're, you're familiar with, uh, Stanley Hauerwas's work, but, um, you know, the, yeah. okay. The, the thing that he says is that the church is the Christian politic. And so I think as a, as a Christian anarchist, um, you know, my, my goal isn't the individual. Like, I, I mean, I think I, I believe in individual freedom and I, I think that the state's a huge problem. Um, but you know, my positive politic is, is the church, like, um, communities of peace that model peace that don't compromise, um, that yeah aren't aren't cogs in a wheel, um, but they do the right thing because it's the right thing, um, regardless of what some authority tells them to do. You know they obey God rather than men, and they're communities that are generous and um, that disciple one another. And and uh, 
I think I think that's an important positive ethic, not only for the world, but also for you know people who are returning from from war who are Christians, because Christians compose a lot of the military. Um, and I, I think the one beautiful thing about going into a senseless war is that it might wake some people up. And uh, when they do wake up, I think that that the church needs to be there um, to offer that positive, uh, the the positive politic. But unfortunately, like you said, a lot of a lot of American Christianity uh, is hand in hand with the government and doesn't have anything to offer. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's best demonstrated by um, the military clergy uh, and the entire organization of like the 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 faithful amongst the military. If you want to see um, the, the most rotted unironic corpse of Christianity, just go to a, a military uh, on base church somewhere and listen to a sermon uh, where they contort scripture to justify anything. And it's, it's, I mean, it's one of the things that really gets me pretty heated um, at this point in my intellectual walk, because I mean, th- these are the these are people that are being relied upon um, for spiritual guidance, and instead are really just uh, explicit water carriers for regime. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think you're doing a great thing here. Um, and any any Christian uh, who's really working to try to spread the gospel um, in light of the peaceful proclamations of Jesus, not despite it, um, are really. Uh, doing God's work. Uh, and, and I think it's so important, uh, because unfortunately it's, it's the minority voice, um, for, for Western Christianity anyway. Um, and have break, breaking that I think is, is, is a difficult task, but I don't think it's, you know, for, for people who are truly faithful to, um, to God and to scripture, I, I think that the argument can be made. It's just a matter of, of finding where that wedge issue is for them and, and hammering it because I think it has to be done. I think it's one of the more important things for us as contemporary Christians uh, to, to figure out, to resolve. Well, thank you very much for, uh, for agreeing to do this. I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, it was great. Thanks. That's all for now. So peace. And because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.